Well, as you well know, facing adversity is an inescapable reality of living in this world, right? Inevitably, we all have to face difficult circumstances in our lives, and yet, oddly, when we plan for our future, I don't think we typically include adversity or hardship into those plans, which is interesting if you think about it, because adversity is as common to the human experience as anything else, if not more so. Yet, although we, uh, although we plan for marriages and plan for families and plan for careers and vacations and all kinds of life experiences, most people don't plan for adversity, which is even more peculiar when you consider how much more deeply our lives are shaped by adversity than they ever are by ease. The truth is, hard times shape us in ways that good times never could. In the first century A.D., simply professing to be a Christian for some was a life-threatening decision. We have many records of the persecution of early Christians from ancient authors, men such as Tertullian, Eusebius, Josephus, and others. One uh, writing in particular a history of the Roman Empire titled Annals by the first century Roman historian and senator Tacitus describes the emperor Nero sewing Christians into animal skins and then feeding them to wild dogs while he stood by watching them being torn to pieces. He also would saturate their clothing with wax and then nail these followers of Christ to Roman crosses and light them on fire to serve as human torches to illuminate his garden at night while he was entertaining guests. The fact is, to a great degree, the early church was shaped by adversity, and of course, those are some of the most extreme cases. But remember, in the first century, Christianity was just getting started. Right? The, the public at large didn't have an understanding or an appreciation of this new religion as they saw it. And so to be a Christian, even if you were, uh, were not physically persecuted in the first century, to be a Christian was to be constantly peppered with questions and ridicule and pressure from those outside of the faith, at the very least. There's no way around it. Adversity was a way of life for those early believers, and as a result, it shaped the early church. And so the apostle Peter wrote a letter to encourage them. And in that letter he said this, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 1 Peter 4.12. What a weird thing to say to your friends when they're going through hard times. Right, how many of you, when your Christian friend is going through something truly difficult, how many of you say to him or her, don't be surprised like something strange is happening to you? As a Christian, you should expect things like this to happen to you. No, we don't say that. We don't say that to each other because in popular Christian thinking today, adversity is something to be avoided at all costs. It certainly is not something we would ever willingly embrace. And yet again, as we've said, adversity is an inescapable reality of living in this world. Jesus made that clear when he said to his disciples in this world, you will have tribulation, John 16, Which, by the way, is exactly why the apostle Peter was able to say, don't be surprised when fiery trials come. Because Jesus promised us that they would come. And so according to Jesus and his apostles, we're not only to accept that adversity will come, but we're to actually expect it. 
to plan for it and even to embrace it when it comes. Why? Because of what it ultimately produces in us. Again, Peter said the fiery trial comes upon you to test you. James, the brother of Jesus, said, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James 1, 2 through 4. Again, Peter said in this, You rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. You see, adversity is meant to build your faith, not wreck it. That's why we're to embrace adversity because of what it produces in us. And so even though you don't get to choose whether or not adversity comes, you do get to choose how you respond to it when it comes. And that response is what makes all the difference in the world. And yet this whole concept of how Jesus and his apostles taught us to respond to adversity seems to be increasingly lost on the modern church. Okay, ultimately... Listen, adversity should always cause you to seek after a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what he's capable of. You with me? Adversity should always cause you to seek after a deeper relationship uh, with Jesus Christ, understanding who he is and what he's capable of. And that builds your faith. And yet what we tend to do in times of trouble today is just the opposite. We try to gain a deeper understanding of our circumstances so we know what we're dealing with and also what those circumstances are capable of doing to us so we can formulate a response. But the problem with that approach is instead of building faith, it builds fear because we're focusing on circumstances rather than on Jesus Christ. So listen, if the measure of your faith is dependent upon the manner of your circumstances... Fear will rule your life. It's exactly what we're going to see in our story today as we continue this sermon series, working our way through the gospel according to Mark, where Jesus' disciples, the men who were closer to him than anyone else on the earth at the time, they find themselves for the first time since following him facing real adversity as they're engulfed in a life-threatening storm on the Sea of Galilee. Keep in mind, these men had left everything to follow Jesus. They listened to his teaching day and night, week after week. They witnessed him completely befuddle the most brilliant legal, religious, and political minds of the day. They watched him perform countless miracles, healing untold numbers of people and casting out legions of demons. And yet the moment they experienced real adversity, their faith in Jesus comes crashing down like the waves that were beating against that boat, and their confidence in Jesus evaporates like the mist on those angry seas. Why? Because they were focused on their circumstances instead of on Christ. And yet Jesus, in spite of their lack of faith, or confidence in him, Jesus miraculously delivers them from the storm, and in response... These utterly bewildered disciples look at him and then they look at each other and then they ask the question, 
Who then is this? Remember, these were the same people who knew him better than anyone, and yet so awestruck were these men by what Jesus had just done in their presence, they couldn't help but ask the question, who then is this? Which to be sure was the right question for them to ask, by the way, because although those 12 men had a relationship with Jesus, they did not fully understand who he was, and they certainly did not understand what he was capable of. Otherwise, they would have responded very differently to that adversity, and it's the very same for us today. You see, if adversity, if, if difficult circumstances cause your faith in Christ uh, to falter, if, if it causes your confidence in Christ to disappear, then listen, you don't need a better understanding of your circumstances or what they are capable of. No, what you need is a better understanding of who Jesus is and what he is capable of. And maybe there's some of you here today who are facing real adversity in your life right now. We all do at times, of course. The fact is, you cannot always choose your circumstances, but you can choose how you respond to them. You can allow that adversity to shape you by building your faith, or you can allow that adversity to ruin you by wrecking your faith. The choice is yours. And it all comes down to what you're focused on in the midst of that adversity. And so we're going to, uh, we're going to go on a journey today, a journey with Jesus and his disciples across the Sea of Galilee. And along the way, we're going to gain a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what he is capable of as we answer this question. Who then is this? Let's pick the story back up where we left off last time at Mark chapter 4. We'll begin by reading verses 35 through 37. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. If you were here when we started this chapter, you'll remember that Jesus has been preaching to the crowds of people from a boat just off the shore of the Sea of Galilee to keep from getting crushed by the mass of people who were constantly pressing in around him to try and get close to him. And so as we pick the story back up here, Jesus has been in the boat preaching to these people all day long. Now it's evening and he's clearly exhausted, as we'll see in a moment. And knowing, of course, that he won't be able to get any rest if he stays where he is, he says to the disciples who were with him in the boat, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, meaning they didn't go ashore to get supplies first. They didn't stop to eat a meal. They didn't uh, take time to create an itinerary. They didn't consult anyone about the weather or the condition of the sea or anything else. They just look at Jesus. They get in the boat with him just as he is and start off across the Sea of Galilee at night, by the way, in a fairly uh, small boat. In 1986, interestingly, archaeologists discovered an intact fishing boat on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee that is not only consistent with the ancient records and descriptions and depictions that we have of fishing boats from that time period, but carbon-14 dating actually places that boat at the early part of the first century A.D., the same time period of this story. 
So this would have been the same type of boat, if not the same boat, that Jesus and his disciples were in at the time. It's 26 and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, could hold up to 15 people maximum, with only four of those being rowers. And so with the disciples and Jesus, the boat's almost full to capacity as they're crossing this sea at night. And being at the bottom of the Jordan River Valley, the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. It's actually the lowest freshwater lake on earth, surrounded by hills and mountains. And so it's not uncommon because of its unique position and elevation for winds to funnel through those valleys and gorges between the mountains from the west off of uh, the Mediterranean Sea or from the east off of the desert and creates this violent, uh, these violent downdrafts resulting in sudden and extremely powerful storms over the sea. And so along comes one of those violent storms. And yet, there was something significantly different about this particular storm. Three times in the story, Mark uses the word great, once in each section of the story. The first time being verse 37, where he describes the storm as a great windstorm. In the Latin translation, that's the word magna. In the ancient Greek, it's the word megas or mega, which means exceedingly great. In other words, uh, this wasn't a great windstorm such as those that were common on the Sea of Galilee. This was actually a mega storm storm like any other, and we're going to find out why in a few moments, but it was such a violent storm that the waves were crashing over the boat and actually filling it with water, which all bodes very poorly for the well-being of the disciples except for one very important detail. The fact that Jesus said, let us go across to the other side. You understand, before they ever left the shore, Jesus knew they were going to get caught in the middle of a storm, a storm violent enough to kill them, and yet he didn't say to his disciples, let us go perish in the middle of the sea. No, he said, let us go across to the other side. And the reason that is so profoundly significant is because of what it says about who Jesus is and what he's capable of. You see, what Christ calls you to, he will see you through. He knew exactly what was coming for those disciples and himself on that journey across the sea, and yet he didn't hesitate to call them to cross over to the other side because no matter what they would face along the way, listen, no matter the severity of the storm, no matter the lack of faith on the part of the disciples, no matter how impossible the circumstances may have seemed, Jesus was going to see them through it all all the way to the other side of that sea because that's who he is. Whatever he calls you to, it doesn't matter what you face along the way. Whatever Jesus calls you to, he will see you through. But look, it's more than that. Because Christ's call for those disciples wasn't just on the other side of that sea. The truth is the journey getting there was just as much a part of their calling. In fact, the storm, the waves, the water filling the boat, the imminent danger they were facing, it was all a part of their calling. 
Because when Christ calls you to something, every step that you take in the journey to get there is just as much a part of that calling as the destination itself. And so every setback, every frustration, every disappointment, every discouragement, every danger and every hard day that you face is just as much a part of your calling. Why? Lord, if you're calling me to the other side of the sea then why not just let me paddle over there without all of the trouble and all of the setbacks and all of the hard days that I keep running into along the way? Well, I'll tell you why. It's simple. Because you're not ready for what's on the other side of that sea yet. You have more learning, more shaping, more understanding, more faith that needs to be built up inside of you in order to prepare you for all that he has waiting for you on the other side of that sea. And yet, you'll never get all of that if everything is always easy for you. That's why we embrace adversity in our lives because adversity is the vehicle God uses to give us what we need to fulfill our calling. It's how he shapes us into the men and women we're supposed to be. The Apostle Paul said it this way, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us, Romans 5 three through five. Did you catch what Paul is saying there? I want to make sure you don't miss it because once you understand who Jesus is and what he's capable of, particularly in the midst of your greatest adversity, then I'm telling you, you will never look at hard times in your life the same way ever again. What Paul is saying is the hope that you need in the midst of your suffering, in order to get you through it, the hope that you need doesn't come from someplace outside of your suffering. No, it comes through your suffering. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. You see, the truth is, suffering or adversity is the vehicle God uses to give you what you need to fulfill your calling. That's why you need adversity in your life and why you should embrace it when it comes. That's why the disciples needed to get through that storm on the way to the other side of the sea. And it is why you must go through storms in your own life as you fulfill the call of Christ. Because without those storms, Without that adversity in your life, you won't be able to handle everything that he wants to give you and everything that he's calling you to do. So look, you have to shift your thinking. You have to fundamentally view adversity differently than how you've been taught to see it, okay? Listen, adversity is not something you run from. It is something you learn from. How? How do you learn from adversity? By focusing on Jesus Christ instead of those circumstances, knowing that whatever he calls you to, he will absolutely see you through it, giving you exactly what you need as you need it. Because that's who he is, and that is what only he is capable of. Let's keep reading, verses 38 and 39. But he was in the stern, that's talking about Jesus. He was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, 
And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. Imagine yourself out in that boat with these men, far from the safety of land, engulfed in utter darkness, overtaken by an angry sea. Your boat is filling with water as the howling winds drive the waves over the gunnels of the ship. You've lost all ability to control the boat or to navigate your way back to shore. You're taking on water faster than you can bail it back out, and now the boat is riding lower and lower into what is about to become your final resting place, the bottom of that sea. You've done everything that you possibly can to ride out the storm, but it's not enough, and now all hope seems to be lost. Keep in mind, several of these disciples were professional fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. This is what they did for a living. In fact, it's what they'd done their entire lives. So it's not like they were inexperienced sailors overreacting to a bad thunderstorm. These were capable boatmen. In fact, if anyone was qualified to make a judgment about the severity of a storm on the Sea of Galilee, it was these same men who were in an utter state of panic and fear because they'd probably never seen a storm anything like this one before. Remember, this was a mega storm, what we would call the storm of the century. And so despite all their frenzied activity, all their efforts to take control of the situation, the boat is going down. They're all about to die, and Jesus is in the back of the boat, fast asleep. It's not hard to understand their distress an amazement to find Jesus sleeping through all of the noise and activity and commotion. And so, of course, they wake him up and ask the same question that probably every single one of us would ask. Jesus, don't you care that we're about to die? And so Jesus gets up and he does something that says a lot about, first of all, what was actually happening here. And secondly, it says a lot about who he is and what he's capable of, because he doesn't just calm the wind and the waves, as we see him do in other events in Scripture. We know clearly, right, that Jesus had the ability to control nature. We see him calm a storm in Matthew 14. He curses a fig tree in Mark 11. He controls a fish in Matthew 17. He changes water into wine in John 2. Obviously, Jesus had the ability to control nature, but listen, this was something altogether different. Mark says that Jesus rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And here's why that matters. Because every time Jesus rebuked something, what he rebuked had a satanic origin. Whether it was sickness or sin or a wrong attitude or a demon possession, Jesus rebuked what was evil. And so it is profoundly significant that he didn't just calm the wind and the waves as we see him do in other places. He actually rebukes them. In fact, if you read this passage in the original Greek, Jesus uses the same language to rebuke the storm that he used when rebuking the demons in Mark 1. And on top of that, 
The disciples' response to Jesus rebuking the storm, as we'll see in a moment, is the same language that is used to describe the people's response to Jesus rebuking the demons in Mark 1. So he speaks to the storm exactly the same way that he speaks to the demons, and the effect on those who are with him is also the same. So you see what's going on here, right? This storm of the century wasn't simply a natural weather event. This was a demonic attack against Jesus and his disciples, which makes perfect sense. If you think about it, up to this point, Jesus has been spreading the gospel and casting out demons and healing the sick everywhere he goes and teaching his disciples to do the same. Everywhere Satan had a foothold, Jesus was taking back that ground and the kingdom of darkness was feeling the effect. And so finally, Jesus and his disciples are all together in a boat at night in the middle of the sea. And best of all, as far as the enemy is concerned, Jesus is so exhausted, he could sleep through just about anything. This was a golden opportunity for the enemy to take out Jesus and his followers all at one time and finally put an end to the work they were doing. And so the ruler of this world, as Jesus referred to Satan in John 12, 31, the prince of the power of the air, as the Apostle Paul referred to him in Ephesians 2, 2. He stirs up the wind over the Sea of Galilee in a way that was so powerfully violent the disciples would lose all control of their ship and surely end up at the bottom of the sea along with Jesus, right where Satan wanted them. There was just one significant flaw with that plan. Satan thought he was in control. In fact, when the disciples left the shore, with Jesus resting in the back of the boat, they thought they were in control. And then when the enemy stirred up the wind and the waves, he thought he was in control. And then the expert seamen among the disciples who surely took over when the storm arrived were desperately trying to regain control. And all the while, the only person who actually had control was in the back of the boat, fast asleep. You understand, no matter what is going on in your life, doesn't matter what it is, what Christ calls you to, he is in control of. You may be facing the most difficult circumstances of your life. It may feel like the enemy is battering you from every direction. Maybe you're even beginning to lose hope. Listen to me. The enemy is not in control. You may be desperately trying to ride out that storm in your life using every bit of experience and wisdom and ability and resources that you have to get through whatever it is you're facing. But I have news for you. You are not in control. And I know because I've been there in the midst of your greatest challenge in life when everything seems to be crashing down around you it may feel like God is asleep because you can't see him moving on your behalf in the midst of that storm but I'm telling you whatever it is that he's called you to he is going to get you there because no matter what happens along the way no matter how difficult the journey becomes no matter how helpless you feel or how silent God seems, whatever he has called you to, he is in control. Listen, even when you don't have enough faith to get you where you need to be, God is still in control. 
Clearly, the disciples didn't have faith to ride out the storm, as we'll see in a moment. So they cried out to Jesus, and without any faith from them whatsoever, Jesus calms the storm because he was in control. And even though he'd called them to something that, yes, they absolutely should have had faith for, he still didn't need help from their faith to do what needed to be done. You understand, God's sovereignty is not subject to your faith. Of course we're supposed to exercise great faith in God throughout our lives. Of course we are. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. But look, whatever life God has called you to live, he will see you through that journey, even in those moments when you don't have enough faith to believe that he will, because no amount of faithlessness on your part can wrestle one ounce of sovereignty away from God. He is faithful and in control even when you are neither of those. And so he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the sea. And he said, peace be still and the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And here we find Mark using that word mega for the second time. The first time he used it to describe the storm, he said it was a mega storm. But now Mark uses the same Greek word to describe the calm that Jesus commands over their circumstances. Mark says it was a mega calm. You see, the only thing that could overwhelm the intensity of that storm was the even greater intensity of the calm that Jesus commanded over them. And again, the key wasn't their faith. Even though they absolutely should have had faith, but they didn't. Jesus was still in control, which means he was going to get them to the other side of that sea, storm or no storm. So what prompted him to calm the storm? Well, it wasn't their faith. Not at all. They had none. What prompted him to calm the storm is the fact that they cried out to Jesus. David Gusick said the wind didn't wake him. The arguing of the disciples didn't wake him. Water splashing over the boat didn't wake him. But at the cry of his disciples, he instantly awoke. Jesus is like the mother who sleeps through all kinds of racket, but at the slightest noise from her little baby, she instantly awakes. Jesus calmed the storm because they cried out to him and he loved them. That's why he calmed the storm, not because the storm was too great for him to get them through it. Listen, whatever you're going through in your life right now, no matter how out of control your circumstances may be, listen, you can cry out to Jesus, the only one who is in control, and he will not only hear your cry, but he will absolutely respond. He will give you calm and he will give you peace even in the middle of that storm. Why? Because that's who he is. And that is what only he is capable of. Let's finish our story for today. Verses 40 and 41. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? When Christ revealed his power and glory to people in Scripture, both in the Old and the New Testaments, two things would typically happen. First, the people who were there would question who it was that they were actually encountering. And second, they were filled with a reverent fear. 
terror, in fact, to the point that many of them would fall down on the ground before him as though they were dead. It's just what the disciples were experiencing here. Even though they had a relationship with Jesus and they had witnessed him doing many great things already, still they hadn't seen anything like this as he commanded the wind and the seas and they obeyed him and it filled them with great fear as it should. In fact, this is where Mark uses that Greek word mega for the third time in the story. He says they were filled with mega fear. Why? Because Jesus was revealing himself to them with a deeper understanding of who he was and what he was capable of, which is exactly what he does when you focus on him in times of great adversity in your life. You see, what Christ calls you to, he will reveal himself through every time. That's what he does. When you're actively pursuing his calling, especially when following him becomes exceedingly difficult, at points all along the way, he will move in your life or do something in your circumstances that will be so undeniably, supernaturally powerful and glorious that you won't be able to stand before him without an overwhelming sense of awe and wonder, amazed by who he is and what he's just done in your own life. Yet this is one aspect of following Jesus that eludes a lot of Christians today. We don't, of course, uh, say it this way. But deep down, we think our service to God is all about helping him out so that what he wants done in this world can actually get done. As if the God of the universe needs our help. Are you kidding me? The prophet Amos said, Behold... He who forms the mountains and creates the wind. He declares to man what is his thought. Who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Amos 4.13. Maybe this is a newsflash for some, but just so that we're clear, God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us. Answering his call on your life is not about helping him out. Remember who's in control. He's in control. He's going to accomplish his will with or without your help. The reason you follow him is for your sake, not his. So that while he's accomplishing his will for this world through you, you can gain a deeper understanding of who he is and what he's capable of. Look, the call of Christ on your life isn't about you helping him. It's about you knowing him. And so even if you've prayed a prayer and invited Christ into your heart and your life, even if you have a relationship with him, that's good, but you understand that is not the end to the depth of knowing him. It's just the beginning. Because there's always a deeper understanding of who he is and what he's capable of available to you. And I'm telling you, every time he reveals himself to you in a deeper way along the journey that he's called you to, it will rock you to your core. And yet that only happens for those who focus on him as you pursue that calling on your life when times are easy and when times are hard. And listen... Sometimes answering his call 
will mean you being willing to risk the greatest adversity in your life just to get there. Which begs the question, when was the last time you witnessed Jesus doing something in your life that was so great it made you shudder with reverent fear, struck with such a profound sense of awe and wonder at the undeniable display of his power and glory that all you could do was stand back in amazement and ask the question, who then is this? If it's been a long time since you've encountered that kind of deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what he's capable of, well, then maybe you're not actually pursuing his call on your life like you think you are. In fact, I have yet to ever encounter anyone, whether in scripture or in my own life, who Christ has called to live a life of comfort and ease. Think about that. Why is that so? Because it is through adversity that he shapes us and so often reveals himself to us in a deeper way. That's why we should embrace adversity because through the trials, through our own struggles and impossible circumstances, Jesus is always there, always in control and always revealing himself to us ever deeper. That's how he builds our faith and it's how he gets us where we need to be. And so look, adversity will come. We all know that. And although you cannot always choose what circumstances you're going to have to face along the way as you answer the call of Christ on your life, you can choose how you respond to them. You can allow that adversity to shape you by building your faith or you can allow that adversity to ruin you by wrecking your faith, the choice is yours. And it all comes down to what you're focused on in the midst of that adversity. If you stay focused on Christ, no matter how difficult it gets, he will not only get you where you need to be because he's in control of the journey that he's called you to, but all along the way, he will take you deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper with him until all you can do is stand back and marvel with awestruck wonder at his power and glory at work in your own life because that's who he is. And that is what only he is capable of. Let's pray.